I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett, and you're listening to Writers on Writing. My guest today is Gary Phillips. Gary's been a community activist, labor organizer, and has published various novels, comics, short stories, as well as he's edited several anthologies, including Orange County Noir and the award-winning The Obama Inheritance, 15 Stories of Conspiracy Noir. Violent Spring, first published in 1994, was named in 2020 one of the essential crime novels of Los Angeles. Gary was the senior story editor on FX's Snowfall, about crack and the CIA in the 1980s, South Central, where he grew up. His newest novel is One Shot Harry, which has been receiving quite a bit of love from the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere. On the show, we discuss why he set his novel in the early 60s, log lines, creating a photographer protagonist, and so much more. And before we get to the interview, if you like what you hear and you take away a few things that you can apply to your own writing, consider becoming a Patreon supporter. Let's get into our talk with Gary. So Gary, I'm so glad to talk with you again. Um, I loved One Shot Harry, as you know, and um, thank you. I, I don't, I don't know what was different about it for me. I'm sure as we talk. Um, today, I will um, come to what why it struck me a bit differently than, than, than your other work, which I've also liked very much. But this one just did something else. And I don't know if it's because the history, because Harry um, was such a poignant guy um, or what it was. But let's start with you talking about the book and how it came about. Well, the book, uh, I guess, has a uh, uh, not not two genesis. I don't. I'm, that's probably not the plural of that word. Anyway, uh, so one uh, part is I found out that because uh, I've been researching something else, and then I, you know, invariably you stumble onto something, some other aspect, some other factoid that, of course, carries you down a separate uh, hole, rabbit hole on the Warren. Um, but I learned that King, who, Martin Luther King, who I knew had, you know, come to L.A. several times, had been to L.A. specifically in April of 63. And this is four months before the March on Washington, the historic March on Washington. Um, and he had spoken at Wrigley Field. Now, I knew that South Central, this is the Wrigley Field in Los Angeles, I should say, not the, not the more famous incarnation in, uh, in Chicago, which is still there. Um, but our, we had a Wrigley Field here, also built by the, the Wrigley uh, folks, because they also had, you know, property out in Catalina and what have you. And um, our Wrigley Field was at 41st and Avalon, which 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 was then uh, South Central, and um, and the Triple A Angels played there. Anyway, King is there to speak at something that's billed as the Freedom Rally. There's you know uh, entertainers there, Frank, Aretha Franklin. Uh, sings and and uh, people are there, and then later there's a reception at Burt Lancaster. So sort of all sort of the Hollywood liberal class uh, is there, or at least will be at the reception later at Burt Lancaster's house. And this is all toward raising money 
uh, and raising the profile for the March on Washington, which, which is, as I said, would be in four months. Okay, so I had that little fact rumbling around, you know, in a, in a file somewhere. It, I should say, by the way, that being old enough, I used to have a, what they, what they call a morgue, right, which you kept these clips from different magazines and, you know, newspaper items and just stuff that was of interest and that, you know, you would keep in a file and you would look at now and then thinking, well, I could do a story with this and I could add that or whatever, whatever. But nowadays, of course, you kept on the computer, although honestly, I still keep printouts <laughs> of stuff. Uh, anyway, so I had that fact, factoid. And then um, I'd also known about, or I'd stumbled once upon a time at a, onto an exhibition of a guy named Harry Adams. And Harry Adams was uh, a freelance, among several freelance, black freelance photographers in the late, in the 50s through the, through, well, really through the 70s here in Los Angeles. And they, you know, they worked for, uh, well, there was more than one black, now there's only sort of one black newspaper or black weekly left, the Sentinel. But in those days, there was actually a couple others, and one of them was the California Eagle, which kind of has was more the more lefty paper, more left of center paper than the Sentinel. But anyway, and Harry uh, did did uh, photography for them, and he was also a part time barber, which I always thought was kind of a hoot, right? Because he, you know, I'm, I can I can sort of imagine, you know, he'd have the police scanner going in the barber shop and run out, you know, in the middle of a haircut, right, to you know go cover something. Oh, he did he didn't really take a lot of crime photog photography. He did take though. Like when King came in town and when, Mark, when Malcolm X came in town, that those folks came in town, he, he certainly would take those, their pictures and he would be at the rallies or be at the, the talks they gave. And so then the other incarnation that is for my Harry Ingram is uh, the famous, the infamous uh, Ouija, mm -hmm. Arthur Fillig, who in, I guess, from the 30s through the early 50s was in fact a crime photographer uh, in New York City prowling the five boroughs. A lot of his photographs have been collected in a couple of different uh, books about him. And I guess there's a, there's a fairly recent uh, biography out now about him. And he was the guy who would, in fact, take that picture of the guy laying in the street after the mob rub out uh, the husband laying in the vestibule with a, you know, with a knife in his chest because the old lady finally had enough of him and, and what have you. And, and in fact, he inspired a, a, a late 50s TV show called Man with a Camera with Charles Bronson, of all things. Mm. Uh, so anyway, so, so Harry Adams in L.A., Arthur Fellig, Ouija in, uh, in New York, who although he, he actually moved out here to, to the West Coast as well at one point. So those two guys, I, I think, combine or, or kind of uh, take from to create my guy. And my guy uh, is but you know still kind of uh, fleshing him out more i decided to make him a korean war vet uh, the korean war is the first uh engagement with the with the u.s armed forces where the armed forces are integrated uh so i thought that was a kind of interesting aspect to look at uh and the idea that harry is sort of carrying these uh uh now we would call it uh ptsd in those days they still called it battle fatigue Mm -hmm. Even I guess shell shock. Shell, I guess shell shock was more the World War II uh, nomenclature for uh, you know carrying these. Uh, huh. Well, in his case, I guess these sins uh, that he's carrying from the war that is, that are still bothering him and that are still weighing on him at the t at the time we start the story. Mm. Yeah, yeah. There's so many layers to this story, and 
and so much history. I mean, I learned so much about LA reading this book, apart from everything else, just LA and what was going on in LA and the Santa Monica Pier and the rides over the water. I mean, just the women who worked for NASA. I mean, just all of this history that you infused into the book was so interesting to me. Things I had not known. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think it's funny, kind of back how I backed into the story, and I suppose in a certain way, um, 63 or at least 63 here in L.A. becomes a kind of um, crucible for Harry, right? That he's, I mean, I imagine Harry to be in his uh, early, no more than 35, but I certainly imagine to be in his early 30s. He's had these experiences, but he's just a kind of, you know, working class guy. He's not, he, I mean, it's not that he's unaware. I guess that's the point. I guess part of the point is in his arc in the story, and now that I'm working on the second uh, outing of this character, uh, it, I guess what it happens, what I didn't really um, consciously do, but I think now I understand that I've done, is uh, a kind of uh, awakening of, of Harry, as at the same time there's a sort of social political awakening, not to say, you know, you know, the civil rights movement is on the march, right? There is a reason that King has come to LA because he knows he can get, you know, you know, I mean, he's been to LA before, but he also knows that, 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 that the, that the white liberal lefty celebs, uh, you know, will respond, right? I mean, they may not go down on the freedom rides in, uh, in Mississippi. I mean, I guess Harry Belafonte did and Dick Gregory did, but, but he also knows that you know they'll you know their hearts are in the right place and they'll, and they'll give money and and, and you know listen money is important you got to keep you, know, you have to feed and clothe people and people who are doing the doing the on the ground work so so there's a kind of pivotal time period in '63 that I just sort of occurred to me as I was writing it right so so even like when we get to the uh, parts of the book that are in the West Adams section. Uh, uh, which at that point, you know, was was mixed. And what I remember from a kid, because my, you know, my my dad's side of the family was the poor side of the family. Of course, the Phillipses were all poor. But my mom's side of the family, the Hutton side of the family, and those extended cousins, you know, they had they had some means. And and you know, I had cousins that lived on on the avenues, right in in uh, West Adams, and they had you know two nice two two story houses in the big backyard and all this stuff and. I got to you know stay over there on the weekends sometimes as a kid from you know my, my our little house in uh, in South Central off literally, literally off the railroad tracks the, the Southern Pacific railroad tracks ran down uh, Slauson Avenue. Um, so that's the West Adams I remember as a kid, and that's the West Adams I'm putting in the book. As in fact, the Santa Monica Freeway, which was true, was coming through there at that time, and you know using gentrification and and eminent domain to push some of those folks aside. And I'll end with this, or I'll end this little segment with this, which is to say how interesting it is. And this was just on, I just heard this piece on uh, Press Play on on, on, uh, on the radio the other day, and it's been a, there's been some articles about it, where this one particular um, developer is essentially flipping West Adams, I mean, at, as a whole, you know what I'm saying? He's coming, comes along, he's offering people money, he's also so, sometimes using and this has been reported, you know, gangsterish, gangsterish tactics to move people out yeah. uh, as, as now that part of West Adams gets transformed. Mm. Wow. Well, do you have the book right there? Can you read 
read to us? Oh, man. Uh, oh, okay, right. hold on a second. No, wait a minute. Hold on. I got it. Wait a minute now. All right. And while, while Gary uh, goes to get the book, I will remind you that um, this book is One Shot Harry, and it's published by Soho, and it is wondrous. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna read a real quick piece because I I don't want to read too long, but I, I I do I think this piece well I'll read the piece, and then um, and then we can talk about it because I think something what I was just mentioning uh, kind of comes up. All right. Uh, comes up in the context of the book. All right. Okay. Soon the barman returned with his drink, and Ingram drank slowly. Realizing there was a tension in his shoulders, a residue of his encounter with the cop today. There were black cops in the forest, but why the hell was it the white ones were the ones he always seemed to encounter? Surely, sitting here in a bar with luck in its name, some of that had to rub off on him, didn't it? He sniffed, having more of his rum and coke, relaxing some. Hey, G.I., you lonely tonight? Ingram had been staring at a napkin with the bar's name on it. Now his head jerked up. Who said that? He glared at men and women, couples, and, and those sitting by themselves. Little Eva was singing locomotion on the juke with that woman's voice. He wheeled back around on a stool and chalked it up to his nerves. The welcome alcohol warmed his insides. He had more, already considering another round. I know you're cold out there. Ingram bolted off the stool, nearly knocking it over. Hey, man. The customer next to him blared. God damn. That was Soul City Sue, Ingram muttered. Mm. Now, Soul City Sue was a real person as well. Uh, like in World War II, where you had Tokyo Rose and uh, uh, Axis Sally. And I think they just, I think they've made a, a, a miniseries now, or maybe a, mo a movie, I guess, is coming out now about uh, Axis Sally. Uh, Soul City Sue was uh, the woman you heard over the PA system or over. Uh, North or what would become North Korean radio, mm -hmm. uh, you know, as a way to sort of undermine the morale of the uh, of the American GIs. As it turned out, Soul City Sue was not Asian. She was in fact a white woman from like Arkansas. And there's a whole crazy story about right how she winds up becoming Soul City Sue, which I guess will be the subject of somebody else's movie at some point. <laughs> <laughs> but but Harry now is in this bar. A bar that he frequents, and uh, you know he's just having this drink after this somewhat, ten, as I mentioned, somewhat tense encounter earlier that day with a with a officer, member of the LAPD, and he hears her voice. Now, of course, he's uh, hallucinating. He's having a a kind of flashback, but is real to him, right? And it's gripping him. And not that he's not that he's going around the bend so much as I just wanted to point out that. I think in that passage that, you know, these things are inside of him. And, and it's at a time, you know, again, this is 63. Not to say that Harry is, a, a, I mean, he's not, he's not unenlightened, but it's also the case that in 63, particularly if you were a man, you didn't go to see, you know, a, a therapist. You didn't go to see a head shrinker. And so he, it's only him and another guy, a buddy of his, uh, Arthur Yarborough, who is blind, but he was... He, Arthur had been in the, in the service as well, and he had gone blind when he stepped on a landmine. Uh, and so he and Arthur are buddies. They didn't serve together, but they met after the war. And so he and Arthur have a couple of conversations about 
Soul City Sioux and that time in the war. And they don't really get into anything in depth, but you know, for them, they're just sort of scratching at the surface. They're trying, they do know in some part of them that uh, there's this damage and, and um, you, well, like all of us, you just find ways in which you have to either compartmentalize that, I suppose, or uh, uh, to, you know, to better deal with it in some fashion. That it never really goes away, I guess that's really the point. Mm, interesting. Yeah, you know, I, I wanted to ask you about something <clears throat> you mentioned a, a minute ago or a couple minutes ago about um, Ouija. And I remember Ouija from when I studied photography and, and just, you know, just had such a vivid memory of, of his his work. Um, yeah. So it was it was interesting to to read that. But on it was on an interview. I don't know who you did this interview with, but something that you sent me a few weeks ago where you said that um, you use templates of photographers for your characters, or maybe for Harry. And I wondered if you'd talk about using templates uh, for characters or even plots. Yeah, I, well, it, templates in the sense that, you know, there are people that, as you know, Barbara, you know, there's people that we've we've met or people that we, you know, are friends with or have some uh, dealings with, uh, whatever that might be. Uh, and, you know, just, you know, we're, <laughs> you know, we're cultural vampires. I mean, what are you going to do, man? You just, you know, you take from these people, man. You, you know, you, you, you don't really quite take their blood, but I, I suppose I, you know, you, you take little bits and pieces of them, or at least how we perceive bits and pieces of them, right? And now for some of our friends who, who you might know better below the surface of how they present themselves, that's one thing, right? Uh, but then there are just people that we just sort of know, or as I said, encounter, or, you know, like, I forget, I, I, I'll never forget this. One time I was in the airport and I'm just sitting there. I'm, I'm really, I'm just, I am just sitting there in, in my seat waiting for the, you know, the board. And there's a guy, a few, you know, seats down from me. And he, I don't know who I don't know who he's talking to, where he's talking to, but he's giving his bank number out loud. You know what I mean? He's giving his social security number out loud. I was like, well, you know, if I was, you know, a, a person of a certain kind of persuasion, a certain bent in my in my life, man, I'd just run away and steal your identity right now. But I just thought, well, what kind of world? You know what I mean? He's just talking on the phone and you know whatever. And you and you see that all the time now, right? People are having arguments on the on the phone or saying something you would consider somewhat inappropriate on the phone. I mean, <laughs> but, <you know. laughs> so I don't know. Are we all in our own shells? We all believe that somehow we're, you know, we're not seen or not heard in this world of my God, you know, cameras <laughs> everywhere and everything and everything can listen, you know, NSA can turn this camera on and, you know, at night, you know, in our computers who watch us and whatever else. Right. So, um, you know, Anyway, all that's to say, all that to answer that question, which is to say, all that stuff go is is always you know in your head as a writer, right? So you 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 got to sort it out, you got to filter it out, and then you pick you kind of pick and choose, I think, right? Some and then and really honestly, sometimes I'm writing. It was just the other day I was working on the second Harry book. Sometimes, which by the way starts in the middle of of the Watts riot in '65, uh, but sometimes I'm just writing. 
And it could be a throwaway character, but you still want to give that character a little something. What you know, whether it's a physical thing or it's a little tick or something, just something so it's not just so uh, throwaway, I guess, right? Mm -hmm. Just not so disposable, uh, as if they in fact had a life beyond their function on the page. And to the other point of your question, beyond their function possibly in advancing the plot, sure. because you know, I write mysteries, I write crime fiction. Uh, so I do want to give you, the reader, um, this problem that my main character will have or has and what happened, you know, and not lay out everything, of course, for him or her uh, to, to be readily available to them. You got, you know, you got to, you got to earn the mystery. You got to work for it. Uh, so you want to put them through their paces. And as you put them through their paces, I'm ho I'm hoping that not only am I advancing plot, but I'm also then illuminating character. I'm also then, as I use dialogue, to uh, to both give you a sense of who that character is. And also, by the way, because we all do this as well, um, you know, what is it that character is hiding? Now, of course, in the novel, even though I write third person, I write close third. So invariably, I'm usually, for the majority of that book, in, in that particular character, I'm usually in Harry's head. I will occasionally, very specifically, go away from Harry. Mm -hmm. uh, but I am, and I realize this now, I mean, I, I shouldn't say I realize this now, but I, I realize how I do, these, do this. So when I go away from the character, I do it sometimes to give you some sense of another character, like for instance, Harry's girlfriend, his lady love, is uh, Anita Clare, and her folks had had been or were, are still, uh, if they're not communists, if they're not members of the Communist Party USA, they certainly were fellow travelers. If they certainly are leftists. Her her mom is white, her dad is black, and uh, and so she's been through some stuff. Her and her sister have been through some stuff as kids through the you know through the period of the Red Scare and all that. And uh, so there are times when I go, you go with her here or there because I'm, I'm interested one in her life separate from Harry. And I'm also interested in that she's involved in something that was sort of a uh, very uh, uh, minimal uh, subplot in the first book, which is going to be, which is taking a bit more prominence now in the second book. So I guess I say that to say, uh, I, Again, I'm interested in those characters, but I'm also also interested that if I give you something for the plot, if I reveal something, um, I want to reveal it to you, the reader, and but then still hold it back because Harry might Harry won't know it yet. And I always think that's kind of nice because I think that to me, I think that helps to keep the reader reading because they want they also want to know at what point is Harry going to get hip to what's. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, so I wanted to talk to you <clears throat> about your first two pages because they so perfectly set up the character. They set up the situation. Um, I mean, we learn that he listens to scanners. He listens to classical music. He listens to jazz. He smokes cheap cigars. <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious how important those first couple of pages are to you or the first page even I mean are you 
tweaking that as you go on writing the book as you make your way through the story are you going back to the the beginning to to realign it or do anything to it or do you just go straight through and, and get to yeah no I, I i to to use your term that's a great term yeah i do realign i i didn't sub substantively change the beginning that is to say the four friends sitting around shooting the shit, drinking beer playing dominoes Red Fox playing on the on the LP. <laughs> that 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 remained the same. Now there's some tweaking with the dialogue because I, I realized that I need to, to to reveal a few things up front to give you a better sense of who these different guys were. Although we learned later that uh, Josh Nakano, who's the Japanese American buddy of these these three black guys, um, have been he's a little bit older, not much older, but he's but he'd been in World War II. As part of the all Japanese uh, 442nd, uh, and and that he has a son, but you know Josh is not talking about any of that. I mean, he's just playing dominoes, so nobody's really talking about their backstory. It was revealing a little bit of backstory in the in the uh, descriptive passages, but not too much. Uh, and I I've I've done I do even less of that in the second book. But but I thought yes, I thought I, I you had to I, I thought I had to give the reader a, you know a bit of a uh, time and place. Where are we? Who is Harry? Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, and listen, and you know, uh, Harry's content with his life, right? I mean, he's not. It's not like he's. Um, I mean, he. You know, at, at different points, he gets challenged about the <laughs> the kinds of photos he takes. I mean, taking you know people in their in their worst light, and and he sort of gets jammed up on that, and and he gets defensive about it. But you know, it, well, it's what he does. And, and, he, and he realized that to, I mean, he's not really an adrenaline junkie. I mean, that's not the, that is really not the correct term for Harry, but he does realize he does get a certain rush out of it, right? He does, you know, it, it does, it is of interest to him. It's not, you know, taking wedding shots and, and continues does not be something that he would find of, of any interest. So he, he, so he is, he understands that to the, to the degree in which he will self-examine himself, uh, he understands that he is drawn to that. And and so all of that is there, and some of those guys, and you know, Strummer, his uh, his his kind of <laughs> gangster buddy, is 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 there, and um, and Shoals, he and Shoals went to went to grade school together, and of course something happens between he and Shoals, and this will reverberate in the second book as well, uh, and then and there's Josh, who who's a uh, who's interesting, right? Because he's he's a he's also a man who has seen death, and yet he's a funeral director. So what is that, right? But he's a funeral director. In particular, in the Crenshaw district, and I, and while I don't go a lot into that, it is of note that you know the Crenshaw district was this place where uh, Japanese Americans and Black folks uh, intermingled at a at a time, uh, and you know the Holiday Bowl was that was the bowling alley right there on Crenshaw. They kept the facade that it's now a Starbucks. Of course, everything is a Starbucks. It's now a Starbucks, <laughs> uh, uh, but the, so the bowling alley is gone. But they used to have bowling teams there, and they, you know they were integrated. And stuff. Anyway, so is there's a there's there's a little bit of that that history we get as we get further into the book. And so that's not to say that I'm not saying that Josh is a, a plot device. None of the guys are a plot device so much as I think what happens is when I come up with a character. I'm, I'm interested in the character. And so then once I'm interested in the character, and then once I figure out a little bit about, you know, something about their life under their skin, then how they uh, live in the world and where they live in the world 
comes to me as opposed to the other way around that, oh, I, I'm going to talk about the Crenshaw district and therefore I got to have a character about it. No, I'm kind of interested in who this character is and, and therefore work backward as to say, well, where, you know, where would this guy live or where would this guy work? Hmm. Yeah. You know, the other thing too, is there's so much, um, so much about how photographers worked in the sixties, right? Yeah. I mean, he, he has a darkroom in his trunk. Um, yeah, that's, I stole that, but I stole that from Ouija. Ouija, Ouija right. did that. He, he would, he would, he had a dark room in his trunk because he would just develop that stuff on the fly, man. Yeah. But it was so painful, uh, you know, how he's treated, um, you know, early on, uh, I believe a cop or a detective, somebody destroys a camera of his that he has to patch up and, yeah. and it was painful, you know, um, you know, it was just so many of those scenes, I'm sure, happened and um, were just very kind of painful to read about. And that, I don't know, I mean, again, back to history and the history colliding with fiction. And, right. But, and but you know, but, but Barbara, you know, but Harry doesn't bemoan it. He doesn't, you know, yeah. he doesn't, you know what I mean? It's just, yeah. it's, it, yeah, it's just the price of doing business. And, right. and, he's, and he's used to, you know, uh, using a little, what little sleight of hand he knows. So when the cops confiscate his film, he, he's because he, he knows right. from experience, he'll put a blank roll in, in the in the camera, knowing that they're going to take my stuff. So mm -hmm. I'll, let me hide the real, you know, the real exposed roll, the stuff I really need, uh, and let them take, you know, let them let them take the blank roll because they don't know they're just, they're just going to expose it to the light. Yeah. What do they know? You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I I love how he uh, he you know he takes dark pictures he he has a dark slant on things and he jokes that look magazine won't hire him and he resolves to take more happy pictures um but <laughs> willie i i don't think he will i don't think he will actually <clears throat> so um i also wanted to ask you about um your influences i mean how did you get into writing crime fiction and and do you, was there a sort of a defining moment and inciting incident in your own life where, you know, this is how you were going to go? <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, uh, it, 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 but it seems, you know, now it seems now that I'm an old man and you look back, right? So you think, oh, you, of course it was all laid out for me, right? Fate, you know, uh, uh, sprinkled the breadcrumbs and I just, you know, follow, followed them, you know, to the logical uh uh, conclusion, a logical point, or, or a logical point of entry, I guess. I, I guess I'm not at the conclusion yet, but to a logical point of entry. But but it doesn't seem any of that. It just seems that, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, I just watch that stuff on TV, man. You know, uh, Peter, Gun well, I still watch Peter Gunn. They show him on MeTV, Mannix, all that stuff. Man. I just love that stuff. And um, I discovered uh, Chandler when I was a teenager. Uh, I discovered Pulp when I was a teenager playing football at, in high school. Uh, that, at the, that was the time when they were reprinting the uh, Doc Savage uh, Pulps that Bantam uh, did uh, with those great covers by James Bama, who, who recently passed, by the way. Um, so, no, it's just the material that I was always drawn to or, you know, the stuff from Holloway House, which you could buy. Those were the those are the books you could buy on the spinner rack at, at thrifties. You couldn't buy those books in the, in the regular bookstore. Uh, you know, so it, it was just the material I always read and it was stuff I always gravitated to. Uh, and I, and I don't necessarily, I don't have any other, um, 
you know, deeper psychological, uh, maybe there is something deeper psychological there, something about the, you know, solving puzzles. Well, hell, I read, you know, I read Agatha Christie. I read, um, who's the woman who created, Dorothy L. Dorothy L. Sayers, right? Uh, uh, Lord Peter Whimsey uh, books. Uh, uh, and I found those fascinating. I read, I read, you know, Sherlock Holmes early on. I read Poe. So I, I don't know. I just, I just, I just love that material. I guess I like the idea of this plot and characters and, and some kind of resolution. And uh, so at some point, you know, down the line, when I finally figured out um, I want to take a crack at writing some of this kind of um, stuff. Uh, but I also knew at that point that I would draw on my own experiences as a community organizer and labor organizer and this and that, um, because I also knew that for me, that would make the, would give me a niche, right? It'd give me something different than some of the other material that I, at that time I was reading, uh, as well as then what I thought could, I could provide uh, authenticity uh, uh, to, you know, to the writing. Mm. Do you have rituals before you start writing? No, not at all. I, I used to, uh, when I was young, younger, uh, young, <laughs> I used to be able to write at night into the early morning. Well, I used to have to because I, I, I worked up, you know, it's not even really a normal job. I, I, I was fortunate to work different activist kinds of jobs and I worked for, uh, I was the outreach director for the Liberty Hill Foundation, which is still around, which funds community organizing. So I'd be, you know, I'd be out of the housing projects in uh, at Nickerson Gardens uh, or or uh, uh, Pico Village, uh, not Pico Village, uh, Pico Aliso Village in, uh, in East LA. And I'd get home at 10 o'clock at night and and when I was writing the first book, and I just uh, you know the kids were in bed by then when they were small, man. Uh, and 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 uh, uh, hang around with the wife until until Gilda fell asleep, but she would always fall asleep pretty early because she was worn out from the kids. <laughs> and and then I would write, you know, I could write till two o'clock in the morning and get up and, and go do it again. But now, well, now I'm I'm you know I'm I'm just a full time writer, and so the only ritual is. Uh, I get up in the morning and, uh, well, our grandson lives with us. So we, so we, so we get him ready and he's a hoot. And, uh, and then, uh, but then I write in the morning. And so now it's, uh, I get I, every day, if I'm working, like I'm working on a book, I'm working on a book. Now I try to make my count. So if there's any ritual, that's the ritual. I try to make the count. The count's usually 1200 to 1500 words. So what is that? Five and a half, six double space pages. And by then I'm, I'm, I'm pretty well shot. You know what I mean? I'm I'm kind of done, and you know that might be noon or something like that, or or maybe even one if it's you know if it's been you know tough sledding, uh, and then I go do something else, or I might go to the gym. Um, but yeah, that's so. So if there's any ritual. The ritual now is get in the get up in the morning, get boy off to school, or I take him to school. We switch off sometimes of that, or sometimes we got you know even we got to take him to his karate class. Whatever we got to do. But then get coffee and 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 do a little correspondence. I usually do a little correspondence first. I probably do that's probably so the ritual is get the coffee, do a little correspondence, and then and then then hit it, right? Just get to it. Um and then try to try to make try to make the count. If I make the count, it's good, right? But then the next day, by the way, talking about realigning, which is a, which was great, I thought. Uh I you know, I I, I will go back in. And now I work from an outline, but I will make notes, right, as I go, because I change things and somebody shows up that I didn't think was going to show up or whatever. 
And I realize, like now I'm pretty deep into the book, right? This next book. And so now I, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to stop. And now I'm going to go back. And I've already tweaked some parts and this and that. But I've made notes where I think certain scenes should happen now. Or maybe certain scenes got to get excised or got to get moved. And so now I'll go back in now because I'm about, yeah, about four-fifths done on the book. So now I'll go back and fool with it another month and a half and change some stuff around and, and tweak some stuff. And then, and then we'll get me, this will then get me to the conclusion to, you know, to wrap stuff up. How many words do you aim for, for the entire book? Well, like once that Harry was only 75,000 words, I, I've written some books that I guess it have been about 90,000, but usually for me, if I if I if I'm doing more than eighty thousand, to me I'm padding. I I I think I kind of like a little leaner novel. Now I'm not to say, by the way, don't, don't misunderstand me. There are certain there are certainly novels that are much longer that I think work quite well. I but I just think for me the way I write and the way I'm interested in 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 in, in what I'm writing, uh, a, a little less for me is better. I I think. I think is I think it helps me to move things along. It helps me to 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 not, you know. I mean, you got look. You got all the real estate in the world, as you know, that you want in a novel. So whatever you want to sort of dwell on or fool with, that's fine. I, I think that's fine. But I tend to like even with my subplots, I tend to want them to sort of if they don't come together, at least there's a, a point in which they're parallel and they start to get closer together because certain things overlap one to the other. I find that interesting. I. To me, it's more like how life does, right? Leaks from one part of your life leaks in the other part of your life. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah. So, the, usually seventy-five to eighty. Like this one, like I said, the first one was seventy-five thousand, which is a little shorter. This one, I think, the second one is going to be around eighty or eighty-two thousand. Yeah, don't you think though? I mean, I I find so many novels I read, I. There's a point where I start skimming because it is padded. Oh, that's interesting. Want, yeah. You know, I don't know if if writers just feel like they have to write longer books or if editors are encouraging them to write longer books. And yeah. I don't know, but I I find myself skimming a lot. I didn't that's see yours at all. But, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's like, why is this so long? Where was the editor? I find myself asking that quite a bit. Very much. interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. <clears throat> How much time do you spend on an outline? Oh, you know, Barbara, I used to make these long, intricate, my God, there would be, oh, I had outlines, you know, 25, 30 pages. Now I'm lucky. If I do more than seven pages of an outline, that that's a lot now. They're not, you know, so they're not, they're not necessarily bullet points, but they're, and it's and it's written as one it's written as one narrative. It's not written like chapter one. Chapter, it's not. It's written as one narrative, right? So I'm just essentially I'm synopsizing the story for myself, and and uh, and I have some main points that I want to attend to, uh, and and so like right now, like as I said, I'm about four fifths, a little bit more than four fifths done with the second Harry book. And I realize there are some things in the outline that I didn't do, which I think that's fine because I don't think I need them. But there are a few other things that are laying dormant that I definitely want to do. And there are, as I said, I've made these notes and now I realize there are things I want to put in. I want to, I want to insert uh, because I think it'll make a fuller book and I think it'll be more of interest to the reader. So, 
so yeah, so invariably, so the outlines now are, are, are seven or eight pages, but they're like a narrative flow. Um, and, and, and so that's, that's kind of how I, I, I start, or at least how I operate. Are you also coming up with a log line? Oh, no, not really. I, I mean, maybe at the end, you know what I mean? Maybe at the, at the, at the very end when it's all done and wrapped up and it's a neat little package, you can look, I can look back and say, okay, well, you know, here's the log line or here's, here's what the book is about. I mean, I know what the book is about. I shouldn't say it like that. I mean, I, I do have a sense of, of that, but I mean, in terms of, um, yeah, in terms of what you're, what you're asking, no, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know that until I'm done. Um, curious, you know, I, I thought it was funny, um, you know, conversations that are in the book. Will a black man ever be president? Harry says the Arctic going to run out of ice. Um, ice. I can't read my writing. Out of icebergs. <laughs> the Arctic going to run out of icebergs? That, you know, I love all of that because now we're way ahead of that time. And there's all this stuff going on in the book that how did we know? Yes. We know, right. right? Right. That must have been fun. That sort of stuff, I imagine, is fun for you. Yeah. But, well, also because, right, exactly. So that, right, you're, you're sitting there at 63, you know, there's still housing covenants, you know, the, <laughs> you know, the, 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 the police chief of L.A. is actively recruiting. This, this was true, actively recruiting, you know, white cops from the Jim Crow South. So I was like, well, how? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, cops are taking my film. You know, roughing me up on the regular, <laughs> but you know this this is the world, right? This is Harry's world. I mean, it's like, well, yes. I mean, you can imagine a better day. I mean, he, you know, he's down with King and all that, but it's like, well, you know, who? But you know, how, you can't predict the future. You can't, you know, and he has no interest in seeing the future, right? He just has an interest in seeing, you know, what tomorrow will bring and and, and you know his place in it. But you know, Harry's not. He's not. He's not too worried about. About the, he, I mean, he's worried enough, I suppose, about the present as, as opposed to like thinking about the future. I, I was curious about that. Um, I didn't realize that, but it makes sense that LA would recruit from the South. Yeah. Uh, I mean, oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's so much of that throughout the book. I had no idea. And then I'm going, of course, of course, this happened, you know, of course. <laughs> Did you know this was going to be the start of a series, One Shot Harry? Well, I, I know. Well, I always thought I would do a second book, and uh, Juliet, my my wonderful editor at uh, Soho, asked, and so yeah, I, I thought yes, I'll do a second one. Now, I don't know that I'll do a third, or I should say it like this: I I, I so I surely hope to be writing more books for Soho, but I don't know. I mean, I have some idea what what the what the next book will be after Harry, but it won't be a Harry book. So at some point, um, I will probably do a third Harry book, but at this moment, I'm just going to, I'm going to get number two done and, uh, and Harry will lay dormant for a while. And I may be returning to a couple of my older, one of my older characters. So, so I, I'll see, I don't know. I'm so glad there's going to be another one. Very, oh, good. very happy about that. Well, thank so, you. Um, let's see, May 22nd, you're going to be at Noir at the Bar in L.A. Eric Beatner puts on this uh, this event. And yes, and I'll be at, 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 at uh, and I believe Todd Goldberg will, will be with us and um, uh, some other folks I'm blanking on. But yes, Eric puts it on 
people should stop by. It's going to, but you know, they'll see this. There's a Noir at the Bar Facebook page, or LA Noir at the Bar Facebook page. It's at Mandrakes, which is right on La Cienega in, uh, in Culver City. What are you reading from? Oh, I'll read, I'm, I'm going to read from Harry. I'll read from Harry. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I wanted to ask you before we go, sort of, you know, I know you from Noir. I mean, that's how we met. We met via Orange County Noir. Yeah. And, so I'm curious how much noir influences your work, or does it still? Well, you know, it's, um, yeah. So Harry really is a hard-boiled story. Because uh, to me, noir, noir, has, noir has had, you know, it tends to be used, overused, right? Uh, I mean, really, a noir story is about a, to me, a noir story is about a doomed character on a doomed path. Uh, Harry's not on a doomed path now, but Harry is a rugged guy. Anita is a rugged woman, rugged in the sense of they make hard choices uh, and they live by those choices. Uh, and there are things that happen in the book, as you know, that Harry does uh, that, uh, well, you know, will come to haunt him again, right? Will come to be part of that. <laughs> not that he has he doesn't have nightmares every night he doesn't hallucinate every day but but you know you you do these things and 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 there are repercussions i mean presumably if one is not you know a sociopath and i don't think i don't think harry is a sociopath uh and so um so it's hard-boiled it's tough like that it, but it isn't noir um but now having said that uh, <laughs> <laughs> there are touches of noir, right? And 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 so that invariably sort of filters and infuses infuses uh, some of the work. But you know, there's there's plenty of you know there's you know there's a lot of pulp to what I write too, I, which I realize that, and I'm I'm fine with that. Um, there's some, you know there's there's a little bit of social political content. So all of it's a is a is 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 a is a mixture, is a mashup, right? I I, I don't think uh, I'm adhering to any one uh, trope or any one um, standard, if there is a standard, right, uh, to, to writing these stories. Though, though I will, I am, I am clear that uh, the Harry, this Harry story and, and, and the next Harry story are so different than, let's say, recently I wrote a Western, you know, fairly long, I mean, a, a long short story, like 12,000 word Western. And I'm clear when I'm writing Western, and I'm clear when I'm writing fiction. But of course, there are there are a, a lineage, right, from the Western, the Western character, the gunfighter, the lone individual, right, against the system, and how that is carried over into uh, crime fiction, and particularly into a character like Harry, who is in effect an unlicensed private eye. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And you, and so what, what's the difference to, well, obvious, obviously different. I was going to ask you about Snowfall that you write for yeah. um, on FX. Yes. Um, and there you're working with other writers, I would assume. Right. And right. just writing a novel is a solitary process. Um, do you enjoy one over the other? <laughs> <laughs> what? Well, you know, the easy answer, of course, is that you would a novel because you don't have to listen to the other yahoos telling you you don't know what the hell you're talking about, son. 
you know, this is not how we're going to write it. We're going to write it like this. <laughs> no, actually, it's very collegial. Although there are times when we, you know, we go at it. And in fact, we're, we're going back. We've just gotten our, our marching orders. We're going back for uh, the, the room. The writer's room starts up in June. Last uh, and final season of, of Snowfall, uh, season six, which I'm, I, well, I can't say for everybody, but I, I, I'm sure as heck looking forward to it. Uh, uh, but yes, it's, it's a different experience. It's a different, you got to put your head in a different, you know, set. You got to put it in a different gear, uh, understanding that it is a collaborative, that writing for TV or, or even writing for film, right? Even if you go away and you write a screenplay, of course, you know, producer and every, the actor, everybody, you know, is going to give you input. Uh, it's just, that's just the nature of the beast. Um, and so that, I guess the point being, here's the point. There are certain ideas or certain scenes that I might go to the, to the, to the mattresses on, as they say in The Godfather, in a book, with my editor. And there were a few scenes like that with me and Juliet. There are some scenes where I said, she's right, I'll do it. And there are just some scenes I said, no, but here's the reason why I'm gonna do this scene. I, I would at least try to offer a logical, or at least from my point of view, why that scene had to stay or should stay. Um, in TV, in the room, it don't work like that. You know what I mean? A whole bunch of stuff gets put up on the board and a whole bunch of stuff comes back down off the board. You think you, as they say in, in TV parlance, you 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 broke you know broke the story. Nope, nope. We're gonna go back again, you know. And 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 it's just the nature of the process. Now in the end, you know, there's a showrunner, right? There's 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 a writer producer who is who is the head person who has the, who has in the end to make the decision. Now our our guy happens to be a very even tempered, very open minded, but very talented cat, and and he gets all this input, and he'll and and, and he'll you know, it goes in the mix and he's not dismissive at all. And he's encouraging, et cetera. Cause I've heard horror stories, horror stories, right. About <laughs> other writers rooms. So in my old age to fall into this work now, you know, it's like, it's, I mean, listen, there are some days it's just too grueling, but really honestly, I've fallen in, I've fallen in the clover, uh, Barbara, because, <laughs> and, and let me, Oh, and let me, let me say this too, by the way, speaking of another reason why it's good that I've almost through with the next Harry book because come June 1st, when I'm in the writer's room, at the end of the day, I'm not writing nothing. I'm done. You're through. I'm spent. You know what I mean? You, I got nothing. I get, there's nothing left in the tank at the end of the day. You got you to gotta recuperate. You got you to gotta just decompress. Because, it's just, you, you know, you spend hours talking about maybe one scene or just talking about the psychology of this one character and how are we going to show that and portray that honestly in like just three pages of of dialogue and action right it's not like a it's not like a book where i can where you know we're not going to have no uh voiceover <laughs> you know we're going to explain what what they're doing you have to be able to communicate that to the audience they have to be able to get it from their action and and what little they might say and because what you really don't want of course is any you know exposition and we and believe me the red flag will goes up in a second man when you start to you know some piece of dialogue you say well that's, that's too much exposition that's just that's that's you know because it's just la it, lazy writing because you you're forced to figure out um you know just the expression which the actor is going to have to of what's happening, 
So it's a, I mean, it's a, it's a great, honestly, it's a great discipline and it's helped me, I think, as a prose writer to be a little bit leaner. I guess it gets, gets back to that question about the word count, to be a little bit leaner and a little bit more, uh, what's the word I want? You know, I guess be a little bit more of a skin flint when it comes to uh, how much do I put in any one scene? You know what I mean? How much interior, how far do, in, into the interior do I go? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in my reading of One Shot Harry, it seemed just perfectly balanced. Um, Thank you. You know, with the the scenes and narrative, you know, just um, zipping along. I think I read it a day or oh, wow. overnight or something. Yeah. So um, I, I I don't know. I appreciate novels like that personally. Well, Anyway, before we go, do you have any any words for the writers who are listening? <laughs> <laughs> That's the, the, I guess the same old trite stuff that they always hear, right? Well, no, really. You know what? Here's here it is, and this is the hard thing. And, and listen, and I'm I, I don't I don't do it well even now after a few novels under well several you know novels under my belt, et cetera, et cetera. Which is to say. We have got to be, we as the writer collectively have to be the hardest and toughest and cruelest judge on our work. And I'm still figuring out, right? How do I, how do I bring the scalpel, right? How do I become the surgeon to the, to these, because every word is precious. I've sweated over everything, right? And you know this, and then you just like, you got to look at it and then you got to be dispassionate. Uh, and then it's hard, you know, it's tough. Um, so I think that's the, you know, that's the lesson I keep learning, right? It's a lesson because if, if you're not hard on it, as you know, somebody else is going to be, it, mm-hmm. it just is, whether it's the editor, reader, somebody, uh, now in the end though, you still got to write the book you want to, want to, want to read. I mean, I really, that's what I do, right? I write the book I want to read, mm-hmm. but, but I, but that doesn't mean that I want to be half-assed about it. That doesn't mean I want to, uh, you know, I, I, I got to. I got to be hard. I got to be tough on it because sometimes, man, I, I don't know what it was. It was something, it was something in, in the first book, the first one shot, Harry. I can't remember now what it was, Barbara, but it was some passage. Man, I just finally realized that, that passage had to go. And I tried to rationalize it, right? I tried to plead with myself. You know what I mean? Uh, whatever I, you know, whatever I came up with to say, you know, oh, I, it can stay or this or that. And then I said, no, no, I, 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 I'm a, I gotta cut it. I gotta, I just gotta go. And, and it went. And I, I think it, you know, it was better for it. But it had, you know, you, what are you gonna do? Do you keep those parts you cut? Do you put them? No, in the- not really. No, not really. No, no, they're gone. They're gone in the wind. Or you know what I mean? Or like there's an impression that I re- retain from that. And so maybe maybe one or two words shows up, you know, somewhere because I have now an impression of that passage that I cut or, or, or kind of the thing I was going for in that passage. Maybe I've now finally figured out how to distill it, right? To give it just a little bit uh, uh, on the page. Uh, but yeah, generally speaking, man, when it's gone, it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> well, Gary, it's been fun as always. So I, I so appreciate you taking the time to do this. I loved your book and uh, it's great. Oh, well, thank you, I really appreciate you having me, having me on. That was Gary Phillips. His new book is One Shot Harry. If you liked what you heard, please visit our Patreon page. Writers on writing and consider supporting the show. 
Any amount will help us to continue doing what we do here every week. Writers on Writing began in 1998 at KUCI-FM. It's true. Most of that time we were on the radio, which made things a bit easier. If you want to reach out to us, email penonfire at earthlink.net. And thank you for listening.